Welcome back to another episode of the Northeastern Data Initiative podcast. I'm Eric Weiss, and I'll be your host today. It's an honor to be joined by John Hay, the VP of Data Intelligence and Analytics at the Red Sox. How are you today, John? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thanks so much for joining. So for our audience that may not know the brain behind all things data at the Red Sox, could you introduce yourself and the work you do currently? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, maybe going back to my start at the Red Sox. Well, I joined the Red Sox uh, as a baseball analytics intern back in 2013. So I spent a couple of years working under Bill James, kind of building out, you know, player predictive models, you know, contract analysis, kind of more of the maybe money ball kind of stuff. Um, and then around 2015, you know, I, d- I sort of dabbled in some work on the business side. You know, I have an MBA. I worked in, on Wall Street prior to the Red Sox, so sort of had the skill set. And so kind of got approached by Larry Lucchino, who was our, our president at the time prior to Sam Kennedy, to sort of, you know, do a little bit of work for Bill, but to kind of transition over and start thinking about things like ticket pricing, concession pricing, you know, new ventures, um, you know, customer engagement, all that sort of, you know, maybe traditional business kind of stuff. So I've been doing that for about six years now. We've got a team of eight people kind of across data, intelligence, reporting, you know, research and kind of strategy. But yeah, we really touch everything outside of baseball, kind of everything that is uh, sort of data driven and the Red Sox kind of runs through us. So that can be obvious things like how much should a ticket cost or how much should a beer cost? It can be things like, you know, how do you value sort of a, a customer? You know, what someone who goes to Fenway Park or doesn't, it can be new ventures. You know, we're thinking about building a music hall behind Fenway Park, for example. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's super fun. It's, uh, you know, every day is a little bit different. Um, it's, you know, again, I, I'm a, I'm a big Red Sox fan, I'm a big sports fan, grew up in Boston. So, um, you know, the fact that I, you know, sort of get to go to Fenway Park in a pre-COVID environment uh, every day is, is always a treat. Anyway, that's a little bit of background. Yeah, thanks. And I know that story of you going through the Red Sox organization is as unique as it is honestly inspiring because just how long you've been at the organization. Are there any points in that journey where uh, you kind of realized, wow, I've just come a long way through this baseball team that I've always loved? Yeah, no, I, and I think honestly, it was the, the first time. So when I started on the business side in 2015, my, my boss, Tim Zhu, who's our CFO now, he was sort of the one-man analytics team in that he was good with Excel. <laughs> you know, he was an MIT grad, had, gone, had worked at Bain, um, and sort of like, you know, he could he could manipulate data. And so that sort of made him the, the, the data guy. And so I came in and, you know, I was using things like R and SQL and had a little bit more of a background there. And it was great timing because at the time we were, you know, Brian Shield, who's our, our head of IT, was sort of pushing this venture to basically build out our own enterprise data warehouse. So historically, we had not really had a data warehouse. We were sort of pulling data from various sources, stitching it together. We had hired a company to try and build one for us. It didn't really kind of play out. So, so he had hired a guy named George Hom, our data architect, to sort of build out that environment. So it was sort of serendipitous that I was kind of coming on trying to tackle these challenges and suddenly... I had all the data at my disposal that kind of didn't exist previously. So kind of answering your question, you know, the first couple years where we were doing ticket pricing, I was, I was involved, you know, I'd sort of build out some models, but then we kind of get in the room and, you know, it's always a quantitative versus qualitative. We have a lot of people at this company who have been here for a long time and know a lot of stuff. I would say, you know, two or, two or three years in, we're sort of sitting in that room. And I remember, you know, Ron Baumgartner, Richie Beat, and Naomi Calder, who are kind of our senior ticketing, you know, they've all combined and probably been here for 40 or 50 years, just sort of said, you know what? John Hayes model has been right every year. Why don't we just start with that? <laughs> you know, make some tweaks here and there, but like, you know, we, we kind of believe the data now. And that was a really big step for me to be able to kind of get buy-in from those people. Not that they were resistant to data, but that, you know, they've lived and breathed this thing for longer than, a lot longer than I have. And so for them to sort of say, you know what? 
um, we think the models really work and we're able to sort of at least use that as a baseline and kind of make some tweaks. Um, that was a really exciting step for me. And I think really helped us as we were trying to build out the team to sort of have that group saying, you know, for us in a normal year, ticketing is a $250 million business just by itself, just tickets. And so for that group to say, hey, we need the numbers guys to be supporting this effort. Well, you know, when you tell it to Sam Kennedy or someone, it's like, well, we're trying to protect a $250 million business. Yeah, maybe we should hire a couple more analysts, you know, to try and protect that. So, so that was really helpful for me. And I think really helped us make a lot of inroads into other parts of the, the business to the point now that we pretty much work with virtually every aspect of the Red Sox, but also getting into like um, the Red Sox Foundation, some of their FS, FSG properties, you know, Liverpool and things like that. We've definitely been able to kind of expand our reach. I think, you know, using that initial kind of ticketing success as sort of the springboard yeah, and it's a great point for our audience as well. It's one thing to have all the data and all the insights, but without buy-in, they're a lot of the times useless because they're not going to go anywhere. So it's really important to, to hear about that side of the story. And you also had started your analytics career, like you said, the numbers on the field, you know, in the actual game. Could you tell us a little bit about how that approach related to and maybe differentiated from the data that you manage off the field now as well? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question because there, there are certainly parallels, but definitely some differences. I mean, probably the single biggest thing is it's sort of a nuanced statement, but on the baseball side, you know, fundamentally all 30 clubs have the same access to the same universe of data, right? So, you know, we're competing with the New York Yankees on the field and we're, you know, we can all look at, you know, kind of tracks, we can all look at TrackMan data, we can all look at, you know, sort of raw stats. So it's really a function of how are you sort of identifying, like, you know, we all know what war is, right? There's a fan version of it. There's a, you know, but, you know, we have our own version of that we've built, right? We've sort of tried to, to sort of take the existing information and build sort of a better mousetrap. So a lot of the work on the baseball side is how do we take information that's readily available and sort of, you know, synergize it and sort of make it cohesive into something that has more value to us than to another, another team doing the same thing. Whereas on the business side, a lot of the question is how do we even get access to some of this data? So you think about like the customer experience, you know, five years ago, you know, Eric, you might've come to Fenway 25 times five years ago, and we might not have known that. You might've not been in our data warehouse, right? If, some, if, you were, if someone's handing you a physical ticket and you were going on that ticket and you weren't logging into Ballpark and you weren't subscribing to our email database and you weren't buying a Red Sox jersey online, we might have literally not known who you were. So a lot of our effort has been around actually sort of fleshing out that, that data universe, which is something the baseball side solved 15 or 20 years ago. I mean, that's where a lot of these advancements and a lot of the camera technology and video technology have sort of happened. So that was a big shift for me to sort of move away from the data is all here. It's a question of how can we build a better model? And then you get to the business side. And at least for us, it's, it's not, I mean, you want to have the best model possible, but often it's like, well, currently we have no information. <laughs> How do we get from no information to some information? Forget all the information, right? And so it's a lot of, um, it's funny, whenever we hire the last step, uh, when I have a, sort of three or four people for a position, the last step is I will send them a data set and like an intentionally ambiguous prompt and say, hey, 24 hours, don't kill yourself, but send me four or five slides back. And the question is like, tell me something interesting about this thing, right? And the reason I do that is because almost every question that my team gets is ambiguous. You know, it's very rare that there's, hey, you know, what is this player worth? There's sort of an answer for that, right? There's sort of like a solvable, you know, as a problem set kind of thing. On, on the, the business side, at least for us now, there's, in a lot of cases, there aren't, there isn't sort of an answer. And so it's really about how do you get as much of the answer as possible. I, I have a meeting later today. So we have, we have the Fenway Bowl, which was supposed to start last year. We, we now have a college football bowl uh, happening at Fenway Park. This is my this is my plug 
if Brett Miller's listening, this is my plug to get people to, to pay attention to buy some tickets. But we have a meeting about how to, what should those tickets cost, right? So we have to price inventory for an event that's never happened before. Uh, it's in late December. We have no idea what the weather will be. We don't know what the teams are, right? Because you don't know until you figure out who's in sort of what ranking and stuff. And yet you have to sort of try and build out a ticket pricing sort of model. And so the point of that is that we're definitely not going to get it right. <laughs> but the goal is can we use data and other events that we've had? Because we have a, a, a lot of football events and soccer and things like that, hockey. Can we sort of take all of that, you know, fill in some gaps with some estimates and kind of come up with a, you know, A, something that is, you know, as close to that as possible, but B, something that's nimble so that as we learn more going forward, we can kind of make those updates. So I think that's really been a, a big, you know, that was a big shift for me mentally to sort of move away from solving a problem into like a, how do I sort of find the pieces to stitch together to get as close to an answer as, as I can. With this podcast, I hope you don't mind a whole section dedicated to Northeastern data science students. If they come out to the bowl, come on uh, out, shoot me a note. We'll get you guys hooked up. Well, uh, <laughs> we're, we're looking for, we're looking for local people. So that's, uh, <laughs> you, you had talked a bit about ticket pricing and I think it's one of the things that you've done at the Red Sox that's under the radar, but something that has huge impact because it's come a long way. Can you talk about the evolution of that and the work you've done on the data side to take it is where it is today? Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, going back to 2002 when our ownership bought the Red Sox, I think one of the things, not, not to speak for, you know, John and Tom and those folks, but I think one of the things they identified was, you know, the average Red Sox ticket at the time was 30 bucks or 32 bucks or something like that, which that's great, uh, you know, for people who can get it for 32 bucks. But, you know, part of the reason we had a sellout streak from 04 to 13, you know, it's sort of like, Solid Street, that's awesome. Well, what that really means is you're fundamentally underpricing your tickets, right? I mean, it means that demand is far exceeding supply. And so, yes, that's good, but also it means that you're leaving money on the table. And so I think one of the real goals was how do we sort of find the real value of tickets, not just like on an average sense, but across the stadium, different price scales, how do we carve up the stadium, different games, what's opening day worth versus a Wednesday in April kind of thing. And so one of the advantages that we have is um, StubHub has a relationship with Major League Baseball. And so we get access to StubHub data. And so that's, you know, hundreds of thousands of transactions a year. And so we sort of have this interesting, like we basically can see what the free market is sort of deciding. Now it's a subset of tickets and there's fees and there's certain things that you have to adjust for. But it's a really useful mechanism for us, especially, you know, we were one of the last teams. We dynamically priced. So, you know, you probably know this, but variable pricing is different prices for different games. Dynamic pricing is different prices over time. And so we've done variable pricing since about 2014. We only did dynamic pricing on the Green Monster. So the Green Monster, we would sort of fluctuate up and down, but like a field box seat, you know, we set that price in October and that was the price for the next year. We did not change that based on team performance, based on weather, based on opponent starting pitching. So we made a big move actually this year specifically, especially around COVID, just given the uncertainty of both demand and supply, right? We don't know who wants to go to baseball games. We also don't know how many tickets we can sell for the rest of the year. So we went full park dynamic for the first time. And one of the ways, we, you know, one of the challenges was we don't have any data on, you know, when the first time you do dynamic pricing, you don't have price fluctuations on primary, right? Because you've never changed prices before. But we do have years and years of StubHub data that we're able to sort of look at it. So that's been a huge kind of boon for us. And it's actually, you know, we've built these really cool, you know, we can talk about Tableau at some point if we want, but we, we're a big Tableau shop here. And some of the, the visualizations that we've built, like, you know, these stadium sort of heat maps with every single seat, you know, sort of heat indexed to the demand on secondary. And you can paint these really gorgeous pictures of sort of what demand looks like in the park. And, you know, in a lot of cases, we've gotten it right you know, which is great wisdom of the crowd. In a lot of cases, there's real mispricings. And so I think 
the tough thing for a while was, well, how, how do you sort of course correct? Because if something is dramatically underpriced, well, you're probably not going to raise the price by 30% in one year because people have those tickets to say, what the heck? And simultaneously, if something's overpriced, you don't want to go back to those fans who've been paying for that ticket for 10 years and say, just kidding, we overcharged you, we're dropping the price down. So that's where dynamic pricing helps a lot. You kind of come out with your stock pricing and then you can make adjustments over time, pull inventory back. And so I think that's been really helpful for us. We're constantly monitoring. You know, we've got a pretty robust you know, dynamic pricing model that takes in you know, 40 or 50 data sources or pulling in weather or opponents, you know, fan graph, win expectations, playoff percentage, or kind of all the things that you'd imagine, including available inventory, right? How many tickets are actually out there for a game? How many are on hold? Things like that. So we're constantly refining that model and sort of updating our pricing to try and, you know, just better align our, our sort of ticket pricing with, with demand. And, and look, it means we're not going to sell out some games, but as we sort of have, we, we always pound the table and say, selling out sounds nice. It's a great sound bite, but depending on like, hopefully, you know, you sold 37,000 tickets and there were demand for 37,001, right? That's perfect. It means you exactly, but more likely there was demand for 45,000 or 50,000 at that price. And so how do you sort of make sure that kind of aligns? And, and one way we used to do this, sorry to sort of run on here, but we used to just do a lot of packaging. So we basically say, look, we know opening day is underpriced, right? But like for a lot of reasons, we don't want to charge sort of real face value for opening day. I think the optics are terrible. You know, there's just a lot of reasons why you don't want to charge, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a bleacher seat for a game. But what you can do is say, hey, the only way to get opening day is to buy a sauce pack, which is four games. And the other three games are frankly probably overpriced, right? There, there are three other weekday games in April and May and September. You know, face value on those is probably more. So like that bucket of goods now is sort of closer to sort of value. So even though we weren't dynamically pricing in the past, we were on the analytics side helping build out those sort of combinations of, of games. And that was sort of a way to kind of back in a little bit to dynamic pricing and also frankly sell more tickets, right? Because you're you're getting more tickets into people's hands by doing that. So um, so it's it's an ongoing process. We're learning more and more. We've, we've had a big move to Google Cloud. So we've moved our on-prem enterprise data warehouse to the cloud. Well, Google has a partnership with MLB that we've leveraged. Um, through that, we're really developing a lot of abilities around machine learning and some things where we can sort of, instead of having to run this model, you know, and sort of, you know, spin up processing power, it's all living in the cloud now. So you're sort of running this thing almost constantly and sort of, you know, generating new. So I think that's been really helpful for us to sort of be able to um, just be a little bit smarter about how we, you know, generate these price recommendations. But uh, it's it's interesting. I learn something new every day. You know, a game will change and I'll say, what the heck happened? And we'll go look at the data. It's, you know, oh, Turns out that people want to see the Angels because Otani's out there playing playing both both ways, and that's super cool. And I'm going to the game on Saturday because I want to see that too. Might have to get there for batting practice because I hear I hear he hit some. the The rumor is that Otani almost hit um, the red seat uh, a couple of years ago, the Ted Williams red seat that no one's ever reached wow. to get in right field. So I, I'm about to show up just to see if he can do that. <laughs> He's an incredible player. I wouldn't mind if you pull back the model just a bit so, you know, I can get a $32 game day seat, but that's fine. Eric, you're a friend of the team. You, you need tickets, you reach out to me, buddy. We'll, 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 get, we'll get you hooked up. Don't worry about it. Well, thanks so much. But this work is uh, incredible. And there are so many different points that you talked about with how many points of data are going into just ticket pricing, which is just one way fans are interacting with the team. And I thought it was an interesting point from the reading that I was doing before of how other brands, you know, have these customers that either are buying or they don't, you know, it's, you have like a catch up, you buy it or you don't. Um, but for an MLB team, there are so many purchase behaviors and even more non-purchase ones. So could you tell us a little bit, like, what is the biggest challenge? And on the other hand, maybe your biggest success in managing all of these different contact points with your base? 
Yeah, it's it's an awesome question. It's funny. I have a I have a presentation deck I use a lot uh, for you know talking to schools and stuff. And I have a couple of slides on this exact thing, which is basically showing uh, my example is Heinz ketchup, and it's like here's here's what Heinz ketchup looks like. You can buy Heinz ketchup or you can not buy Heinz ketchup. And then here's what it looks like for the Red Sox and the 800 ways that you can you can buy jerseys, subscribe to our email database, you can listen to us on the radio, on TV. I mean, there's so many ways that you can engage with us. And so it's it's a really salient point. And you know, it's 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 funny because it is a real opportunity, but also it's a real challenge. That's kind of why we went down this path with our data warehouse was we sort of realized that we were getting, you know, this someone bought a ticket, but here's our scan, you know, our access control is a separate system than our ticket purchase system. There's just so many ways that you can be engaging with us. And so what we've really built is this, what's called MDM, it's a master data management system. And the theory is that you're sort of trying to almost dedupe all of this stuff, right? So when we started this process, I, John Hay, was in our data environment 117 times through, you know, I grew up in Boston. I've been going to games for a long time. I've been doing, I've been buying jerseys. I've been, you know, there's all these different things that I do. I follow the Red Sox and social media. But the goal is to sort of utilize fuzzy logic and a little bit of sort of computer science to say that John Hay is, that email matches, that email doesn't match, but the address matches. So we think both those emails are John Hay. That phone number is different. That's a different address, but but all of them have the same emails and the same, you know. So the goal is that you can sort of theoretically create one John Hay with all of those sort of touch points. And I think that's where we've really gotten to in the last kind of five or six years. It has not been easy. It's been a lot of work by a lot of smart people, but we've, we've sort of gotten there. And, and the real advantage now is sort of exactly what you said, which is we used to be so focused on ticket sales, right? And part of that is just, you know, half of our revenue in a normal year is ticket sales. But especially before we went full, digital, you know, back when you could see, you know, 2019, we were only 30% digital. So a lot of people come into the park, we didn't even, you know, again, like they were just getting handed a ticket and walking in. So what we started to realize is that we had these people who weren't showing up as ticket buyers, but were incredibly engaged, right? They live near the park, they scanned a bunch of tickets, they listened to us on TV, they follow us on social media, they, they did all, they clicked on all of our emails. And so I think what it's allowed us to do is really build out these sort of customer engagement metrics. And almost like a, you know, there's, a, there's, you know, there's sort of a recency, frequency, you know, sort of monetary spend kind of model where it's, when is this person engaged with you? How often do they, and how much money do they spend? And so we're able to sort of score our entire, you know, we have millions and millions of customers in our database and we can sort of build these dynamic models now that are sort of scoring them on likelihood to purchase, likelihood to renew, what sort of ticket might they purchase? And we're funneling all of that through Salesforce, our CRM system to our sales team. So our inside sales team who sells season tickets is getting models that say, hey, this person, they don't buy tickets, but man, do they look like a season ticket buyer, right? Everything else they do looks like a season ticket buyer, but for whatever reason they don't. And look, maybe their company has tickets and they go on the company's tickets and whatever. Um, so I think that's where it's really been an opportunity for us is to sort of do these lookalike analyses and say, you know, all the people that sort of have this combination of attributes spends this much money. Here are the people that sort of don't. Let's find a way to sort of engage with them. So it's been really helpful for us, these like team affinity models, things like that. You know, who are the people that buy who are the people that are affected by team performance that only want to come when the team is good? Who are the people that just want to come have a good time at the park with their friends and kind of couldn't care less if the team is good or not? Um, those sorts of things become really helpful for us. F people who live in Boston who are fans of other teams, right? People who always buy tickets to the Blue Jays. Well, great. That's a really useful piece of information for us. Let's not only try and sell them tickets to the Blue Jays, but let's actually make it Blue Jays being creative. Like, why are we even sending them, you know, creative with Xander Bogarts on it? It should have Vlad Guerrero Jr. instead. So I think that's where we've gotten a lot. And now look, I always get the question of like, what is it passing this sort of creepiness and big brother stuff? And I think we're always like very conscious of trying not to do that. 
I do think that things have evolved a lot now in the last couple of years where people are so used to getting personalized advertising that it's almost weird when you don't now. You know, sometimes like I'm I'm watching Hulu with the ads on it, like shows me an ad. I'm like, like, why would you possibly think that's relevant to me? That's, you know, it's like for AARP or something. I'm like, am I 65 years? I don't understand how this. And so I almost feel like now, you know, you don't want to be like, hey, John, like how are your children doing, you know, for ages four and two? Like that's a pretty, that's not a good thing. Um, but you do want to be able to say, hey, you know, we suspect based on what we know about you that you might be interested in this offer for last minute student nines tickets for a game tonight on a beautiful weather night kind of thing, right? Because that's what you've shown that you like in the past. So I think that's a balance, you know, we have to sort of toe the line there, but having the data in a place where it is both accurate and also like, nimble and deployable has sort of allowed us to engage with our fans like that and it's really revolutionized i mean five or six years ago 80 percent of our marketing budget was traditional was you know tv radio print billboard stuff like that it's basically it's basically flipped now it's basically 80 percent digital and 20 percent traditional and that's all you know sem you know digital ads things like that so and we can kind of only do that because now we have this you know universe of people that we can say we can spend 200 dollars on a paid social campaign that we know because we're hitting such a small universe of people with such a targeted offer, but the ROI on that's gonna be massive because we just know those people are gonna buy that ticket. Um, so it's a great opportunity, but certainly something we're still scratching the surface of. Yeah, well, it sounds like you need to stop buying those uh, butterscotch candies after your Hulu ad. So you I know, it's, uh, I, I, it's, like, it's like funny. I almost like, like, what am I logged into? Like, I, then I'm like, oh, are my parents on my Hulu account? Maybe that's <laughs> it. Maybe, maybe I've shared my login with my parents. It's all the World War II documentaries, I swear. I know they're probably watching a lot of baking shows, I would imagine. So <laughs> <laughs> a couple points from there. I mean, a lot of great things like having data from different places, being able to give insights to a team where they otherwise wouldn't have, just like a season ticket holder that's not buying tickets, but should be a season ticket holder. I mean, it's a great, you know, point to have all that data to tell a, a complete story. So you talked about working with other verticals also, like sales and marketing. And I know this is really a point of contention in large organizations. How do you feel about your analytics team being siloed if it is or if not? And do you feel like there's more chance to create like some of these citizen developer opportunities or is it better to keep kind of a tight rein on your dashboard and your KPI creation so that you have kind of a stronger vision? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely something we talk about a lot. I mean, Early on, it made sense to have a centralized sort of data analytics team, partially because we were starting from scratch and, and we sort of needed that to be really sort of streamlined and focused. We're hitting the point now where, you know, we support, you know, 300 employees across various departments and we're a team of eight. It's great when you get a lot of buy-in on this stuff and people say, hey, I hear that you you guys like were a game changer for the other team. Like, can you do all the things for me you did for them? And we're like, well... Yes, but <laughs> we do a lot of other things. You know, we're, I always joke, we're sort of the department that if you don't know the answer, start with the nerds, you know, go to the nerds first and see what they can say. And so we, we sort of become this, uh, which is great and it's interesting and it's certainly good for job security, but it is something where you know, at some point, you know, to use our data architects, you know, fondest term, like we got to teach people to fish a little bit, right? And so I think we've, where we've started to do that really is around like things like CRM. So, you know, CRM is under my purview, our sort of customer relationship management, but, you know, it makes sense to have a power user in each department that 
can build some dashboards, that can you know assign leads, that can sort of do maybe not the super high level stuff, but at least sort of knows enough to be dangerous a little bit. And so I think that's where you know a lot of like we always call it the team model because the NBA has this team marketing and business ops sort of centralized sort of and and they do a lot of work at the league that sort of filters down to teams. We always think about that at the at the club level. We have a sort of internal you know department that sort of filters out. And so I think it's you know I think that at some point it becomes difficult to grow. I think that's where, you know, there's a lot of low hanging fruit that you can tackle with a centralized org. And, and it makes a lot of sense to centralize things like data and, you know, reporting because those things benefit from sort of economies of scale. I do think that when it starts to get very specific, and we're seeing this with things like sponsorship, right? So we're getting more and more involved with the sponsorship team in part because the people, especially now, <laughs> people spending sponsorship dollars want to know, okay, great. I get, a, I get my logo on the Green Monster like give me some data that shows me that that is worth what I'm giving you, right? That, that thing ain't cheap, right? So, you know, they're kind of turning to us to say, hey, we need some metrics to show that like sponsoring, uh, you know, the Red Sox lineup tweet is worth a certain amount of money, right? And that's a really different challenge than what should a ticket cost, what should a beer cost? And so we're, we're tackling it and it's been really interesting and we're certainly supporting it, but you know, that's something where back to your earlier point, does it make sense to have someone who is sort of focused on that on that team and liaises with us and has us as a resource that is sort of the you know the point person and is sort of the one that kind of line of first defense. Um, I think that's kind of the model that we're moving to, especially as we, we find more and more of these great like partners and vendors you know that we work with. We work with a company called Data Robot here in Boston that's kind of like outsourced data science a little bit that like empowers people who don't have maybe a technical background to sort of utilize data science. So that kind of level levels people up. Um, just on the sponsorship side, there's a lot of things like um, uh, what's the uh, MVP index is a recent company of YouGov, some of these things that are around like social evaluation and surveys and things that like you now have access to these resources. So the people using them don't need to have a computer science degree or CISIS degree, like they can go and still pull insights from kind of a custom built tool. And so I think, you know, we're, we're all about empowering people. We don't have any pride. Like there's no sense of like, this is our turf. We don't want other people like the more the merrier. If I could have my entire company, you know, be building models in R, I'd, I'd be a happy, happy camper. Um, but you know, that's not realistic. So how can we, what, where's the middle ground of centralizing and taking on certain challenges that are that probably should live with a specialized team and what are the things that we could say you know what maybe our lead scoring model for the sales team should we should find someone who's really analytically inclined on that team who has an appetite for this teach them how we do it teach them how to fish and kind of let them run the day-to-day -day with kind of us as you know the, the relief pitchers waiting in the wings if they need us so um so i think it's, it's something that we think about a lot because i think we are starting to hit a, a bit of the limit that you described where we're now supporting pretty much the entire Red Sox board plus, you know, components of FSG, which is great. Um, but, you know, my, my to-do list never gets shorter. It only gets longer. And so uh, I'm certainly someone who, uh, who gets a, uh, you know, gets heartburn about not, not being able to finish jobs. And so having to prioritize and tell people I'd love to do that, but it won't be for two months is never something you want to say. So how, how can we kind of find a little ground there? But yeah, it's, it's a really great question because I'd be curious to hear what other folks you talk to say, because it's something we're struggling with right now. Absolutely. And I love learning about digital transformation. I do always want to end with one thing from as someone who's learned so much from you, honestly, through all of our conversations on the Red Sox and what you've done. Could you give just a little bit piece of advice for the aspiring data scientists or engineers or, you know, those business students in our audience that are looking up to you now? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, uh, like I said, it's a great question every time, but that's where they're all pretty good questions. So yeah, I mean, I would say a couple of things. One is I think one of the really, big advantages of being in this space right now is that 
I'm in my mid thirties and like the computer science I took when I was an undergrad was like C++, like, like this, you know, all the things that we're using now didn't exist when I was sort of learning. And so it's amazing to me, you know, we hire, you know, our, our data reporting developer, Alex Heggie is a former Northeast, she was a Northeastern co-op that came through, you know, she's in her early twenties and she's the, you know, one of the three or four most technical people in our company because she came in with a skill set that no one else had, and she developed it in a tool that no one else was using. And so now she's just an incredibly valuable employee, even though she's really early in her career. And so I think one of the really cool advantages of some data science, engineering, things like that is you can find these niches where you're the only one with a skill set. Companies much bigger than the Red Sox, you can show up and, and you know, if you make people's lives easier, you know, if you make your boss's life a lot easier, that's something I've done very well and something my analysts do very well for me, you're going to advance pretty quickly because people like that and they're going to sort of reward that. So, so I would certainly say to, to, you know, develop, you know, as many sort of those hard skills as possible and sort of look for opportunities. Hey, I noticed that there's sort of no one in your company who's, who's, who has sort of Python background. Like there's some, you know, there's a lot of things where, um, we also joke that we're the department of, if, you, if you're doing something manual, ask us if we can automate it, because we can probably write some sort of script or a web scraper or something. And, you know, we just like, this is just a silly little, you know, side project, but we'll have things where, you know, group sales would spend 20 hours a week going through all these websites one by one and writing that information. And we just wrote a little like JavaScript and now it's just like the whole thing is done in five minutes and they're like life changer, right? And so if, I think when you come in with that skill set, there's a lot of opportunities that maybe aren't the things that you studied in school, but there are ways that you can utilize a skill set to sort of, you know, find ways to add value and kind of really make people's lives easier. So that's definitely an opportunity that people should be looking for, especially in co-ops or kind of first jobs out of school. Um, and just this thing I would say, which, which you touched on earlier, and I think it's a really good point. I probably said this to you before, Eric, is when it comes to analytics and data, having a great model is necessary, but not sufficient for success. So you can have the best model in the world, but if no one cares or no one believes the results, it just doesn't matter, right? No one's going to know what's a great model. So it goes back to our conversation about ticketing. I came on on day one. If I'd said, guys, forget what you're thinking, you know, you know, data is here to solve your problem, right? Like if I had done that, that would have been a real problem, but I didn't do that. I came in and said, I want to listen to what you're saying. I want to combine all of your wisdom into my model. I want to sort of find the perfect ground there. And so it almost feels like to me, you need to know that you need to have the hard skills, the technical skills together. But what makes people successful advancing is the ability to sort of present very complicated concepts in very simple ways to people that don't have the time or expertise or bandwidth to, to listen to a complicated solution. And so um, I always tell people really work on that sort of, you know, the presentation skills, visualization skills, just being able to tell a story with data is almost more important than the data itself sometimes. And that's something that I think, you know, my team does really well. And part of the, you know, Sam, Sam Kennedy would tell you, you know, Sam Kennedy is an absolutely brilliant man. He's a sales guy. He's not a data guy. He'll tell you that every time you ask him, you know, the way I present information to Sam is very different than how I present it to Tim Zhu, former MIT engineer, you know, like that, like that's a really, but like it's the same data. How can I tell a different story with the same data? So that's why I really encourage people to, and part of the reason I always ask that, that open-ended question to our hires is I want to see what they do when it's not a problem set where you just need to write up some code and solve the problem. How do you sort of handle this ambiguous sort of situation? How do you tell a story with data with sort of incomplete information? So anyway, that's, I maybe cheated and gave you two things, but those are, that's what I got. <laughs> No, thanks so much. I can't express how much I totally feel the same way. Know your audience. I mean, it's just, it's so important giving a technical presentation to a very much not technical audience. And the one thing I know about this audience is that they'll love this conversation and this podcast. Uh, we always have some great turnout when we have a great cast. And John, I mean, it's been an honor to have you on. So thanks so much for coming.
Yeah, no, my pleasure. Again, thanks, thanks for asking me. I really appreciate it. And uh, you know, good to catch up, Eric. It's, it's been a little while. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll reach out to me. We'll get you set up at Fenway and uh, get it taken care of. So. <laughs> thanks so much, John. You have a great one. Right. Have a great day.